Uh, at this time, uh, if there's any kids here in the service, you may be dismissed to Children's Church, uh, to Amy on my left and your right this morning. It is a joy to be with you here this morning, and a privilege and an honor. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Colby. I'm the outreach and recovery pastor here at Trinity Wesleyan Church. And again, it is a joy and an honor to have you here with us this morning. If you're a first-time guest or if you're visiting for the second or third time, uh, we thank you for joining us this morning. And if you're joining us online, uh, it, is a, it is a privilege to have you as well. Today is Pentecost Sunday, and actually I think it's two or three years ago uh, on this day I preached my very first sermon and it was outside during the pandemic, actually outside uh, on the back of a trailer. And so it is an honor to be with you again this morning, again on Pentecost Sunday. And uh, Pentecost Sunday, we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as seen in Acts chapter 2, which we will be at in this morning. But this morning, we won't be uh, specifically in the first uh, set of verses. Actually, this morning, we'll be in, the, uh, in verses 14 through 41. And this is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And so our text this morning is found in Acts chapter 2 again, verses 14 through 41. It is a long portion of scripture, but I want to deal with it in its entirety this morning because I think it's crucial, the things that we find in, sermon, in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. It serves as the very first Christian sermon that was preached and the God-given results of it are nothing short of miraculous. But you know, I've, I've never preached a perfect sermon. Uh, I've preached very few sermons, and none of them have been perfect. And I've, pre uh, I've taught quite a few lessons. And each and every time, I have always fallen short of the mark that is at hand. In fact, most weeks, I fall very short I misquote things. I, I forget to cite some of my quotations, and I often use a lot of filler words. My wife can tell you that I often hang my head in shame and I wrestle with doubts and second thoughts after preaching or maybe even teaching a lesson. At times, uh, the devil also likes to attack me and uh, tells me things I should have said better and things I should have did differently. And at times, I am convicted on things that maybe uh, did not uh, glorify the Lord in its fullness I have, to come, I have to combat pride and the temptation to want to appear as if I have it all together. But nevertheless, I am grateful to God for his mercy and grace and the calling that he has upon my life. He uses imperfect vessels in the ministry of his word. And I'm proof of that this morning. And I think, pre, I think Peter is proof of that as well in his sermon on Pentecost Sunday. Well, here in Acts 2, we read about the very first Christian sermon that was preached. It was a sermon preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost, and we all know that Peter was an imperfect vessel, yet the words of his sermon contain his text are far, more, are far from per imperfect because they are the very words of God himself, preserved and inspired in an ancient scripture. Peter wasn't perfect, yet he was used to preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost, and, and some 3,000 people were saved. I'm going to read that to you this morning, starting in verse 14. Follow along with me in your Bibles if you have it with you. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens, above and, above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the, blood, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also would dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, this, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and, and said to Peter that, and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many others, he bore witness and, gave, and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Oftentimes I like to read scripture in its entirety. Oftentimes I like to stay within uh, a pericope, and a pericope is just a set-apart passage. And uh, I think at times uh, many sermons today and many preachers today, they will read uh, a portion of scripture or maybe even a verse out of a section of scripture and then they will never come back to it. And oftentimes, preachers fall into the category of misquoting Scripture and taking Scripture out of context. And so this morning, this is why I read to you in the entirety of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. This day is very special. This day is oftentimes overlooked. It's kind of after Christmas, after the Easter season, and after that, it's like, well... What do we look to next? Well, we look to, to next year, right? Next Christmas and next Thanksgiving. And we rarely ever give a thought to, to Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is super important because it is when God sends forth his Holy Spirit from the heavens to dwell among those who would call upon his name. I think much of the church today is in need of great men and women with the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. Martin Lord-Jones comments on this passage. He says, The conversion of those 3,000 people was entirely because of the descent of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit using the words of frail, ignorant man, driving them into the minds of hearts and consciences of those listening. The first event of church history that followed the coming of the Holy Spirit was Peter's sermon at Pentecost, whereby the church was launched. The book of Acts places much priority on the preaching of the gospel message. And that is whether it be the apostles or even, or even scattered believers. And for example, 
You can see this in Acts chapter 4, verse 2. It says, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, and every day that in the temple and from the house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Then lastly, Acts chapter 8, verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Preaching has always played a central role in the mission of God for his people. In the Old Testament, we read about the ministries of the prophets, men like Moses and Elijah, Isaiah and Jeremiah. The New Testament presents us with the ministries of the apostles and pastors of local churches who follow in their footsteps. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, rebuke, reprove, and extort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That pretty much sums up where we are at today. Much of the progressing evangelical Protestant church. So much of what masquerades under the label of preaching nowadays falls way short of the apostolic standard established in the New Testament and here on the day of Pentecost. And I'm not talking about style, but rather I am talking about content. In an attempt to reach people and keep people interested, we've turned to shallow and pragmatic means that don't stand up under the scrutiny of Scripture. It's anything goes today, as long as it makes us feel good about ourselves in the process. Discernment is one of the greatest needs of the hour today in the church and amongst the body of Christ. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Peter's sermon at Pentecost presents us with the content that ought to be true of a gospel sermon. In many ways, it is a model for anyone who desires to verbally communicate the truth of the gospel with one another. And it doesn't have to be in a formal setting like this. I want to show you this morning four critical components that should be found in every sermon, as well as in every gospel presentation. Before we dive into that this morning, I know we're supposed to be in a series of eyewitness views and so this morning is not really going off of that series, uh, uh, but we can make that connection here with Peter uh, being changed through the Holy Spirit. But this morning, I want us to look at the contents that should be found in every gospel sermon. You may ask, what does this have to do with Pentecost? What does this have to do with God sending forth his Holy Spirit to dwell with believers. It has everything. Peter here was empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak the truth to dying people. And I don't mean just physically dying people, I mean spiritually dying people who were in need in the greatest hour to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to hear it clearly, to hear it proclaimed boldly and faithfully. And Peter did that under the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think that is a great tragedy today because many people are no longer acting and walking in step with the Spirit today. It is flesh. It is opinionated. It is political agendas. And so many people are dying because of it. So the first thing I want to bring to your attention this morning is Peter's faithfulness to the scriptures. We see this specifically in verses 14 through 21. But Peter, standing up with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall see prophecy, or they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above signs and wonders. Sorry about that, excuse me. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it, shall be, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's sermon is faithful to the truth of Scripture. And keep in mind that he didn't have the New Testament like we do today. Rather, he had the Old Testament, and it will become obvious to us that he knew it well. So notice a couple of things here. First, A, the occasion of it. Peter is responding to the questions that were asked back in verses 12 and 13. In the previous passage, we're told that the Holy Spirit had come to indwell with believers. The disciples were then filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. It was a miraculous display of God's power for the purpose of declaring the gospel to the multiple thousands who were in Jerusalem that day. Some asked the question, what does this mean? It was apparent to all that the disciples were under the influence of something. Others who were skeptical wrote it off as a display of drunken behavior. Peter, however, raises his voice to explain that they were not drunk. They were not under the influence of something, but rather they were under the influence of someone. The multitudes who had gathered were, the, were witnessing the power of God at work and his spirit the crowd was suddenly comfort, uh, confronted by a group of men and women who were obviously very simple people, such as fishermen and Galileans. But they were entirely changed. There was an influential power evident in their lives. I mean, something totally amazing had happened to them, a change in their lives. They were all so noticeably different that it had provoked the question, what is this? What is happening? What is going on? Has someone questioned the change in your life? When you were saved, when you call upon the name of the Lord and the Holy Spirit came upon you and and dwelled within you, were you changed? Did people ask you the question, what's different about you? I can't help but think that sometimes people don't listen to what we say because they can't get past what they see when they look at our lives. The disciples were different. There was a supernatural power that was on display in their lives. Peter's sermon then becomes the basis for the explanation of what happened. Next, look at the exposition. Notice in verse 16, how Peter connects what happened with the Old Testament scriptures. He appeals to what the scripture had said and expounded it in terms of the facts. He says, these aren't drunk like you supposed, since it is only the third hour of the day, probably around 9 a.m., as most scholars agree. Instead, he says that they were, what they were witnessing had been spoken of in biblical prophecy. His entire sermon is a recital of the facts and an explanation of those facts. Peter then quote, uh, quotes directly from, Dro- from Joel. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. But what's the significance of this? The prophet Joel ministered during the time of disaster in Israel. Locusts had swarmed over the land and destroyed everything green. Every tree, every plant, every crop had been consumed by the locusts, and it spelled disaster for Israel's economy. Joel used the opportunity to show how the destruction caused by the locust would be nothing compared to the coming judgment of God. However, Joel also spoke of a future time of blessing in which God would restore the years that the locusts had eaten. He declared that God would one day pour out his spirit upon the nation as they were repentant. 
The result of the Spirit's filling would be God's people declaring his truth. This is what Peter references in his message as he shows how Joel's prophecy has now been partially fulfilled in the sending of the Spirit to live within believers, empowering the prophetic witness. And the day of the Lord here in our text refers to the end of the age. Prophecy in the Old Testament had a dual focus. The prophets saw the coming of Christ in the day of the Lord linked as one event, not two. From our perspective, you and I know that the end of the, the, end of the age didn't accompany, by, uh, didn't accompany the coming of Christ. The prophets saw these two events like two mountain peaks in the far off distance, but they couldn't see the valley in between, which is where we live today. The first peak is the first coming of Christ, but the second peak is his return. In between the Lord's first and second coming is the missionary period of the church in which we currently are in. We live in the age of mission, and the Spirit of God has come to empower us for that mission. We should be a church on mission. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. The church by its very existence is a missional organization. That mission involves preaching the gospel to every nation. Peter isn't done and neither am I. Actually, he made the joke this morning that uh, he had his lunch ready uh, and so that I could go as long as I want this morning uh, and so if I go over, it's Keith's fault. Blame it on him. <laughs> and also the past two sermons I have went short. And so that uh, gives me the ability to go a little longer today. <laughs> Down in verse 25, he is going to quote from Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 through 11. And then in verse 34, he quotes again from Psalm 110, verse 1. This tells us that Peter was a man who was devoted to the scripture. He knew God's word. He, repl- he relied upon the power of God's word as he preached. That he was filled with the spirit is seen in the fact that he was also full of scripture. The fact that Peter was filled with the spirit is seen in the fact that he was so full of God's word. The two always go hand in hand. Are you full of God's word this morning? Are you hiding God's word in your heart? Are you devoted to the scriptures? You don't have to be a a theologian, a, a pastor, a seminary professor. Are you, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, devoted to his word? And I don't just mean the red letters. For further study, you can see Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Next, look at how he focused on Christ in verses 22 and 35, or through 35. For the sake of time, I will not reread this portion of scripture here. I'm sorry. But like a laser beam, Peter's preaching focuses in on Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. He interprets scripture through the lens of Christ and sees him as the fulfillment and focal point of it. His message contains the truth of four things. The first is this, the sinlessness life of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 22. Look, men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, notice how Peter directs their attention to the life of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God. By identifying him as such, Peter is pointing out the humanity of Jesus and uses a name that reflects the humility of his life. The Son of God left his eternal glory and was born as one of us. He grew up in a home 
of a carpenter in Nazareth. In John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This was super important. That he was from Nazareth in Galilee was something that the religious leaders had used as an excuse to reject him as the Messiah. It was a rough neck kind of place, an obscure village, not the kind of place that the Jews were looking for their Messiah to come from. Yet, Peter tells us that he was attested by God. Attested, a word used to speak of exhibiting something. Proof, promotion to high office. In what way was he attested by God, though? Peter mentions at least three ways in verse 22. First, the mighty works. That word means miracles and is the derivative of the word dunamis, which refers to explosive power. Next, wonders. It describes the marveling that takes place in the mind of the, of the one who witnesses the mighty works. Then lastly, the signs. Speaks of the intention behind the miracles. It was always for the purpose of pointing to spiritual truth. Let me say that again. Signs. Speaks of the intention behind the miracles. It was always for the purpose of pointing to spiritual truth. It was always for the purpose of pointing to Christ. When Peter says that Jesus was attested by God, he's saying that Jesus was shown to be God in human flesh, something that was confirmed by many convincing proofs. He has been highly exalted and given a name that is above every other name. He is our tested and proven Savior. Next, his message of truth contains the atoning death of Christ. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says, this Jesus, the very one who was attested by God through the miraculous signs that were associated with his life, you crucified and killed. How's that for being direct? How's that for being harsh? He's exposing their sin. Though Christ's death was according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God, they were also responsible for having him crucified and put to death by the hands of lawless men. The sovereignty of God and the matter did not absolve them from personal responsibility. No, they were fully responsible before God. They were fully responsible for Christ's death. Next, his message of truth contains the bodily resurrection. It says, God raised him up, loosening, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. Even though he had been put to death on the cross, death could not hold his body in the grave. God raised him up. The pains of death were loosed, which means that God put an end to the agony of death for him. And pains, the word pains here literally means birth pains, like the pain of a woman who was in labor and childbirth. The pain is only temporary, and it leads to a wonderful result, a new life. In the same way, death was only temporary for Jesus, and it resulted in the glorious resurrection. Because he is God incarnate, death could not hold him. His life guaranteed that death would have no power over him. Major Ian Thomas says he had to be what he was in order to do what he did. He had to do what he did in order, to, in order that we might have what he is. And we must have what he is in order to be what he was. 
In other words, it is only through faith in his death and resurrection that you and I can possess eternal life. Next, his message contained the truth of the exalted position of Christ. Peter says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He lived, he died, and he rose again from the dead. He is now a, he's now in an exalted position at the right hand of the Father. And Peter says that the evidence is the Holy Spirit and the power that had been poured out which they had witnessed. This was the fulfillment of promise. In Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. What I want you to pay attention to here is that Peter had taken his text and was faithful in the exposition of that text. He interpreted that text in light of the redemptive work of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the ascension of his glory. He is both Lord and Christ, and that was the, all the fulfillment of prophecy and one of Peter's main arguments. He will say the very same thing much later on in his life. He says it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And as an old man wants to die, he says once more, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, Therefore I intend always to remind you, as long as I am in this body, to stir you by the way of reminder. For we did not follow cleverly divides myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's point over and over and over again all throughout his life is that prophecy is a matter of fact. Christ's death, his resurrection, and his glory is established or is an established fact. And as such, it demands a response. So next, look at how Peter is fearless in his delivery here this day. Specifically in verses 36 through 40. It says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified... Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for, and for her all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with so many other words, he bore witness and continued to extort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Folks, a, a good sermon will always be faithful to the scriptures. A good sermon will always be focused on Christ Jesus. A third essential component is that it will be fearless in its delivery as well. Martin Lloyd-Jones has once said that preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. For the second time in his sermon, Peter uses very direct language that called on his hearers to recognize their sin and personal responsibility. It takes courage and spiritual fortitude to do something like that. 
Where does this kind of courage come from? Certainly, it wasn't something that Peter come up with on his own. And actually, we talk about eyewitness views and people being changed after being in the presence of Christ. Peter was changed. It was 50 days earlier, Peter had cowered in fear and denial. Yet here he is, preaching one of the world's greatest sermons that I believe today all of the world needs to desperately hear. Where does this kind of courage come from? How can you have that kind of courage? Again, it doesn't have to be in a formal setting like this. You are to preach the gospel as well. In your lives, day to day, as you go about your day, when you leave here and you go for lunch, how can you have that kind of courage? It comes from the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, within those who know Christ. Look at Peter's conviction here. Notice the response of the crowd in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When they were confronted with the truth, they, or with the truth that they were responsible for, for the crime of crucifying the Son of God, they were cut to the heart. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It will cut and pierce the heart of dying sinful man. It sure cut my heart four and a half years ago. And to this day, I am very grateful for the word of God that cuts, but also for the word of God that gives hope, that mends and it heals, that gives life. That's what happened here. Ray Steadman gives this illustration. It says, imagine that you are on your way to a job interview and you have a car accident. The other driver gets out of his car and you beat him and curse him and kick him. Then you get back into your car, drive to the interview and arrive at the boss's office only to find yourself ushered into the presence of the man you have just cursed and beaten. When reading this illustration, I did kind of give a little chuckle because I tried to imagine myself in such a situation. But maybe that gives us a small taste of what the crowd must have felt there as they heard Peter preach with great conviction and courage and were confronted with the truth that they had crucified the Lord God Almighty, the Messiah. They became convicted of their sin. No person ever gets saved without first being convicted of his or her sin. Let me say it again. No person ever gets saved without first being convicted of his or her sin. That is one of the many jobs of the Holy Spirit, of the Word of God. It is not something that the preacher does. Rather, conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit who takes the truth of God's Word and brings it to bear upon the mind and the conscience of an individual. John chapter uh, 16, verses 7 through 11 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The helper being, of course, the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, and when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Someone has well said that conviction is the key that the Holy Spirit uses to unlock the heart and open it up for salvation. Without this key, one's heart remains locked. Peter's listeners 
were broken over their sin. They were smitten within their hearts, fully aware of the fact that there was nothing that they could do to undo the past. Was there any hope for them? Look at Peter's clarity. Upon being convicted and cut to the heart, the crowd asked the question, what shall we do? In view of our sin and wickedness, what should we do? What response before God should there be? Look at what Peter says in verse 38, if you're following along with me this morning. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter is clear in what their response ought to involve. And he is clear today in what our response should be as well. And he mentions three things. The repentance that is mentioned. Repent means to turn around. Repentance is more than the feeling sorry for one's sin. It is not simply remorse or saying that I'm sorry. Neither is it regret or reform. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior, that leads to a change of life. It is both inward and outward. Then there is the reflection that is mentioned. Or upon repentance and faith in Christ Jesus, a person is to be baptized in water as a tangible, visual expression of his or her re- uh, repentance. It is a picture of salvation, of publicly becoming identified with one in Christ. Then look at Peter's result that is mentioned. The gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit is the result of being saved. God gives his spirit to the one who repents and trusts in Christ Jesus so that they could become one again. And lastly this morning, I want you to look at the fruitfulness of Peter's results and boldly, courageously, and faithfully declaring God's word in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. If anybody wants to do numbers on church growth. If anybody wants to do a study on church growth and how we can grow and be better at a church and get more people to come in, they should do a study here. It's not about the fog lights or the having coffee outside, the new upbeat music, whether or not our chairs are comfortable, if our pews are dusted off, the colors of the walls. This is church growth times 1,000. The church grew that day from about 120 disciples to over three some thousand. It speaks of God-given supernatural results of Peter's gospel sermon. Those who received the word were baptized. I would imagine that there were a lot more who heard the message. But only those who received the message benefited from it. On that day, there were 3,000 who became followers of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. They repented of their sins. They were baptized and added to the original group of 120 disciples. Isaiah chapter 55 Verses 10 and 11, it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the, earth, or to the eater, so shall my word be, excuse me, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I which I purpose, and I shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. What if I told you this morning that, hear me out, that God saved you to make a preacher out of you? Would you agree? 
It's true in a sense. Not all of us may preach in a formal sense like this. But every single one of us have the opportunity to preach Christ to those we meet. We preach Christ and Christ crucified. Your effectiveness as a witness is not the eloquence with which you speak. You hear me today stumbling over the words, stuttering. I'm not an eloquent speaker. I'm so unqualified to be up here this morning. I am a wretch before you in need of the power of the Holy Spirit to rest upon me. It is not whether you have a dynamic, uh, a dynamic personality. I'm as introverted as, I, as they come, and yet here I am, an outreach pastor. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. That's probably the funniest joke all morning. Yeah. But real effectiveness involves you being filled with God's Holy Spirit and faithfully sharing what Christ has done to save sinners like you and I. It means you rely upon the truth of God's word as you share Christ in the power of his Holy Spirit and then trust God with the results. That has been very, very hard for me, trusting God with the results. I feel like there's something more that I should do, especially when preaching a sermon. I can give you all the application. I can give you all the illustrations in the world, and there's still something I feel as if I should do. Then there's, I can give you the, the greatest exposition of scripture in the world and there's still something I feel as if I should give you. And oftentimes, lose focus of the fact that God has called me to preach and share his word and have faith in their results. God saves men and women, puts his spirit within them and opens up their mouth to declare to others the saving message of Christ Jesus. Are you declaring that message this morning? Are you being a witness this morning? Are you filled with God's Holy Spirit this morning? Are you walking in step with the Spirit? Romans 10, 13. Paul says the same thing that Peter does in Acts verse 21 here. He says, Paul says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then Paul asked a question in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 17. And here will be part of my conclusion. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So how will they hear, folks? How will those who are out there hear? To conclude, I give you the words of Charles Spurgeon. If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your husband. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. And I will say that one again. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. You either try to spread about the, abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. If you really know Christ, you are like one that has found honey you will call others to taste of its sweetness. You are like the beggar who has discovered an endless supply of food. You must go tell the hungry crowd that you have found Jesus. And you are anxious that they should find him too. How are they here, folks? 
Are you like one who has found honey? Will you tell others about his sweetness? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly, Lord, come before your throne of grace this morning and we give you thanks. We give you thanks for who you are, omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign Lord of all. Lord, we thank you for your providence in our lives, your provisions that you give to us, Lord. We do not deserve it. And this free gift of saving grace, Lord, we thank you for it. Lord, I also pray this morning that you would revive our hearts. Lord, that you would give us a, a conviction and a boldness and a, a great courage to share the gospel. Lord, give us the Holy Spirit within us. Give us the boldness such as Peter had that day to preach and proclaim your word. Lord, may we, may we be faithful in doing that. May we stick to the scriptures. May we hide your word in our heart. And Lord, may we not just hide it there, but may we share it. So as we go out today, Lord, open our eyes to see the ones that are hurting, to see the ones in need that are in need of a, an encouragement, a, a, um, a word from you. We're either a missionary, or we're an imposter. May that conviction fall upon our hearts this morning. And may we truly ponder upon that question today. We praise your name. And it's in Jesus' name. And all the church will say, amen. It's a joy and an honor to be before you this morning. Uh, I thank you for allowing me to the opportunity to come before you and, and preach this morning. I, I thank you for your grace and your mercies uh, to me. Uh, again, I, I'm, not, I'm not good at this. I'm not an eloquent speaker, but uh, I am called to, to be faithful in what God has called me to do. And part of that calling is to preach God's word and to preach Christ crucified. So again, thank you this morning. And as you go out this morning, I want to remind you of, we do have a baby shower this evening uh, at two o'clock. Uh, I have posted it in our online group, but if you can be a part of that this morning, we have a baby shower over in the Family Life Center at 2 o'clock this evening, and I hope to see you there for that. Uh, go in the grace and peace of Christ. Thank you very much.